0: Thank you. to the Vertiguise show. I'm Sean. I'm Eric. And we are the Vertiguise. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Preacher, Hellblazer, Sandman. That's right. We are covering Sandman today. We are smack in the middle of the biggest story arc, The Kindly Ones. We will never not be covering The Kindly Ones <laughs> ever again. <laughs> Yeah, we'll do it like Archimedes. We'll start doing half issues and then quarter issues and then battles. Yeah. <laughs> no, but honestly, this actually this episode will actually bring us within a stone's throw of finishing, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. This is our second to last kindly ones episode. Things are heating up. Don't turn off your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot going on in the Kindly Ones. We probably should not try to recap everything that's come before. I think we'll recap stuff when it becomes relevant. Right. Yeah, I refer you to our prior episodes. Yeah, no shit. And they, in turn, will refer you to the comic book itself. Yeah, which is worth reading. It's true. We wouldn't be here doing this if we didn't think it was worth reading. You might have the opposite impulse of why we're here. We are actually not here to summarize it so that you don't have to read it. That was not our our plan. Yeah, and I don't think we're saving you much time, actually. No. (laughs) That is not our forte. Sandman episodes run long. So, let's launch right into Sandman number 64, The Kindly Ones 8. Well, let's start with this lovely cover by Dave McKeon. There's kind of an hourglass half buried in the sand, and the lower half of the hourglass contains the face of Morpheus. Yeah, I thought it might be broken because there's sand everywhere, but it's also obviously on a beach, so Mm -hmm. who can know? You know, who might know? Neil Gaiman, who wrote this issue, and it was drawn and inked by Teddy Christensen with colors by Daniel Vazo. Christensen's art is Mark Hempel-like. Hempel is doing... Most of the issues in this story arc, and we're getting kind of a fill in now. But it's pretty similar in style, and it actually works for this issue. The art is a little more abstract than usual. Morpheus's face is thrown into even greater shadow. But in this issue in particular, we're outside Morpheus's head. He's focusing on his work, he's acting inscrutable, so it makes sense he looks even more foreboding and unapproachable than usual. Yeah, although a lot of this stuff is him being petitioned by various people for various things. Mm hmm. So maybe he should look a little more approachable. Maybe he should try to be nicer. Yeah. Maybe he should smile more. I didn't say that. (laughs) Putting words in my mouth. So we open on scissors poised over a thread. Yeah. And we are told that it's Moon Day. Yeah. On Moon Day, the Dream King entertains a group of children who have traveled a long way in search of their mother. These kind of obvious kid-lit protagonists. Yeah. And he has... Flaming salamanders bring them ice cream, yeah, ice creams of exotic flavors they would never taste again, but would dream of for the rest of their lives, or rather until they died, so we're thinking about death right from the beginning. yeah, and then after they pleaded for their mother, he opened a door and sent them off to the rest of their story. The door also on fire, a door of fire. I was just thinking that flaming salamanders carrying ice cream doesn't seem like a great fit. Mm, They are not the the right creature for that job. (laughs) Well, it doesn't have to make logical sense. It's a dream. Yes, that's true. So we see him going about more of his business. There are a lot of cute little details. He arbitrates a dispute between dreams. He visits various dreamers. Yeah, the one that I really liked, he had been asked to permit the sending of a dream of warning to a teenage girl in South Africa. With this dream to drive her, the girl would grow up to take charge of the country to unite all divided factions. Without it, she would become a nurse. Right, and he comes to his own decision, and we do not find out what it is. Yeah, although we do kind of see a panel of what looks like it might be him. Well, yeah, this panel has Morpheus, who is black because he's appearing to African gods, right. talking with these African gods, one of whom is a white guy in a suit. I was thinking of the panel before that where he seems to maybe be in her dream, which maybe gives us our answer. But. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. I like this bit here where he's in the dream of this famous chef, and there's a massive dinner of over 200 perfect dishes, and he tasted sparingly of a vegetable dish and a little plain rice and was contented by the perfection of each, which is very much his style. Next up is True's Day. So we had Moon Day as an equivalent for Monday, mm-hmm. and Tuesday Day as an equivalent for Tuesday. So that's not the day that Sean talks. Oh, harsh. You can, can rely on what I say in this, uh, in this podcast. But that word is lawyer. <laughs> 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 yeah, Gaiman's having fun with the names of the days of the week, which is something that he does often, although he's usually more likely to call in their actual origins, like Mr. Wednesday and Thor's Day. Yeah, here he's just making things up. Yep. So on Tuesday, he listens to the report of a long-traveling nightmare, He walks all the boundaries of the dreaming, including the shifting places and the scaries. Yeah, we get the scaries again. And the shifting places are like the soft places, right? From Marco Polo? Oh, yes, I think that's right. And from there, he walked on into Nightmare. Yeah, Nightmare, in addition to being a type of creature that he can create, is also a place, Mm -hmm. apparently. On Woden's day, he walks the castle, and he is briefly interrupted by the lord of the day, that is, Odin. Odin himself, this is a scene we already saw. Right, this happened last issue, so we're in medias res here. Or we were before. We're in flashback. Yeah. Kind of. Odin came to yell at Dream for helping Loki to escape his bondage, and eventually forgave him because Loki's sneaky like that. Yeah, and also because Morpheus didn't really do it. Right. Now, Loki being free is a big plot point in this story arc. He's sort of. The one who set things in motion alongside Puck in order to get free of his debt to Morpheus for helping him. Robin Goodfellow. Yeah. Also on Woden's day, Morpheus talks to all the castle staff, hearing their grievances and acknowledging their work. Yeah, there's a cool thing here. He speaks to some embryonic silicon dreams, which is to say the dreams of machines. Yeah, and whispered to them briefly about the other machines that had dreamed in the distant past. You know, before the Reapers came to destroy them for having invented AI. Uh Uh-oh. Reapers are AI themselves, though, right? (laughs) I think you're on the verge of discovering the common objection. (laughs) (laughs) He takes stock of the items in the throne room, including, behind these colored glass windows, the raw stuff of dreams. Yeah, I noticed that, too. That is a pretty cool part. There's raw stuff that he needs to make dreams and to make the dreaming work. And this is where he keeps it, in his throne room. It's interesting that what's outside the windows in the throne room is not outside, right? Not outside the castle, it's just a different place. Yeah. And on Thirst Day, it's not apparently Thor's Day. Right. Thursday is actually named after being thirsty, which makes sense for Morpheus, I guess he's always hung up on some girl. Oh, okay. So it's almost surprising he dedicates only one day a week to being thirsty. <laughs> right. <laughs> he walks the waking world. He watches a woman sing of a dream she's had. He inspects the graffiti. Yeah, and we also learned that he owns many properties in the waking world and he wants to check in on all of them. Yeah, he also feeds the pigeons, which is something we saw him do with his sister way back in Sandman number eight. That is right. And did you bother to check what language this is? I did not. We are told that it's a small park in Central Europe, and he feeds the pigeons until somebody points out to him that a sign says not to feed the pigeons. Right, I think obviously he reads all the languages, so he just doesn't care. Yeah, but anyway, we see the sign, and it could probably tell us what country this park is in if we chose to investigate further. I wonder if it fills him with an enormous sense of well-being. What? It's (laughs) (laughs) Tom Lehrer? No, 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 no. It's um, Park Life. Oh, okay. The blur song. Over my head. It's a very good music reference. Fuck (laughs) you! He watches a performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, yeah, that's a thing that happens. Yeah, the play that he inspired Shakespeare to write in Sandman number 19. We can tell that that is in the same park because the benches are identical. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, because the narration box tells us that it's the same park. Yes. So, okay, fine. (laughs) Well, and he walks across the park, which he doesn't have to do. So he's obviously enjoying himself. On Fire's Day, he is interrupted in reviewing the Dreaming's treaties with other powers by Delirium. Now, Delirium has been on a quest to find her lost dog, which is formerly Destruction's dog, Barnabas. And she had a conversation with Destiny in which he told her, basically, you can look for your dog, but that's not the same thing as helping Morpheus with the shit he's going through right now. He said it couldn't hurt to come see you. He told me not to come and see you, too. He said it both. Will you help me find my doggie? You and me, we had such a nice time the last time we went looking for someone. Did we? Didn't we? He's briefly interested when he misconstrues her words as saying she's met destruction again. Well, I spoke to our brother, and he said there's a statue of you that looks all sadly in the garden. You saw him? Destruction said that? Said what? That there was a statue of me that looked all sadly. He never said that. I said that. Indeed. But you saw destruction? Destiny, not destruction. I saw destiny. So can you come with me and look? He tells her. I have responsibilities. I cannot leave the dreaming at this time. And she starts to riff on the word responsibilities, which he uses all the time. Right, she objects that he commonly uses this as an excuse to get out of doing what she wants to do. Yeah. And she points out, Our existence deforms the universe. That's responsibility. Yeah, she says if you stopped to examine a bolt of lightning, you could get struck and killed by one, and from then on, people would stop and stare at the spot where you were killed, and some might even get killed by lightning there. So they're fundamentally disagreeing on the nature of what it is to be an endless and responsibility. She's pointing out that they changed the universe just by existing, whereas to him, it's very important to actively do these things, to be a persona that goes about this business. Yeah, it is interesting. Do we always see the Endless actually working? Or do some of them just kind of like fulfill their function by existing? Yeah, I think we've seen most of them working. I think so too. We've definitely seen Despair, Death, and Dream working. Yeah, and Destruction quit because he didn't want to work anymore. Right, he didn't want to be involved in, well, Destruction. Desire, we've seen it use its powers, but I don't know that it has any sense of responsibility. I think maybe it does what it wants. Yeah, we've never seen it do any work. Anyway, Delirium adds that she knows more about the Endless than any of the rest of them. That's just one of the things that she knows that nobody else knows, that maybe you can't know and not be insane. I just don't know where my doggie is. So Morpheus conscripts a small but highly conscientious nightmare to help her little goblin grudgingly holding her hand and if he was shaken inside or disturbed in any way by this meeting he gave no evidence of this now we cut to rose walker writing in her journal it's fires day in the dreaming and she begins friday yeah okay so rose is doing a lot in this story arc she's the granddaughter of unity kincaid and was once the dream vortex that almost destroyed the dreaming that was a long time ago she was peripherally involved in daniel hall's kidnapping She is taking care of her friend Zelda, who's dying of AIDS, and she's currently in England looking for her grandmother to receive a message that she's supposed to get from beyond the grave, where she's being escorted by a handsome young lawyer named Jack, and she has been invited by the manager of the property, Paul Maguire, to see the house at Witchcross, the house where Murpheus was captured. Right, although Paul did not sell it to her that way. Right. She is writing in her journal on a very early Friday morning So most of what she's going to recount actually happened on Thursday. Right. Big news. I'm writing this by hand so as not to wake up Jack, which is my big news. Yeah, so Rose's big news. She seduced the lawyer. They were having lunch together, and he encouraged her to take Paul up on his offer, visit the house. Then they went for a walk, but they got too cold and went back to the hotel. They have a drink, and she asks him up to her room, fairly bluntly, and he is cutely flustered by it. He went red and started thumping thump thing? <laughs> I love that word, though. I feel like I automatically know what that means. Is that what she... I can't tell if... Is her handwriting bad? <laughs> no, she said thumping. It is thump It which is Which is, I guess, you know, being stuffily flustered. I see. Okay. Well, all right. I guess the world can use that word. She tells him to bring a pack of condoms, and it takes him 40 minutes to find a place that's open so he can do that. Yeah. And I love this bit from Rose's journal. She says she was the first woman ever to go down on him, and then she says, What the hell do they do in bed in this country anyway? I asked Jack, and he said they have hot water bottles. He's snoring gently. He smells like the inside of his stupid car. I really like him. Oh, God, it's 5.30. Oh, God, um, you're lovely. Five sodding 30. Oh, God, I have to go. I really, really like him. Also on Friday, the Corinthian and Matthew sneak into a morgue. They are currently starring in the buddy cop movie of the year. They've been sent by Morpheus to get back the kidnapped baby Daniel. I think that's a joke that Matthew himself makes later. Yeah. Ugh, says the Corinthian. What's the matter? The smell? No, I like the smell. I just got this image. It came in my head, a half-dissected red ape on a slab. Very odd. We actually saw this scene, but the Corinthian has been unmade and remade since he saw it. Yeah, this is a memory of the first Corinthian, or at least the previous Corinthian. The Corinthian visited this half-dissected ape alongside Morpheus and Destruction in Sandman number 44 during brief lives. Sometimes old memories surface like flotsam on the churning surface of the sea, and then they are gone. It's strange not being the first of your kind. Yeah, you can say that again, says Matthew, who is still worried about the fact that he's not the first raven, and that means that... Morpheus's ravens sometimes die. Yeah, or become something else at least. Yeah. So they have found the burnt body of Carla, who was Daniel's mother Lida's friend, who kinda of figured out that the policemen investigating the kidnapping were actually not policemen, but Loki and Puck in disguise, and was burned alive by Loki for it. Okay, we found the kid's mom's best friend. Now what? I can't see what her charred corpse is gonna tell us. You know, in days gone by, they had many beliefs about violent death. They believed that a corpse would begin to bleed again when its murderer walked by. They believed that the last thing one saw before one died was recorded, frozen on the inside of the victim's eyes. That's bullshit. No, that's the truth. It's just no one knows how to develop the images. And he has plucked out Carla's eyes and grins as he holds them up. You're sick! The Corinthian places the eyes inside his own toothed sockets. No, I'm a visionary. And he sees Loki setting the car on fire. Yeah, and as they leave the morgue, he says he knows who killed her. He knows who took Daniel Hall. Right, but is he going to use that information to actually help team good guy? At this point, we don't know. Yeah, he's a tricky one. Meanwhile, in the dreaming, a whole bunch of ravens arrive. Some were larger than eagles some were older than gods, and they just sit there waiting. Saturday, we are told, is Sater Day. Yes, and the castle receives a visitor. We're seeing this in first person from the visitor, as well as a bunch of aspect shots of the three guardians, Griffin, Wyvern, and Hippogriff. We are here to talk to your master. We don't know who we is, but we can probably guess, and we can see that whoever this visitor is, they're casting the shadow of three figures. You will let us into the castle, or you will suffer for it. Griffin says, Lady, leave this place. We are the guardians of the gate, and we shall fulfill our function. Will you not leave? They say nothing. There's a little moment of a face-off here. Then run away, lady. Run very fast. Griffin leaps. Griffin, you are old. Your flesh is meat, and the meat is decaying. Your bones are dry and brittle. Within you now, lion and eagle abandon their battle for dominance, And surrender to time and to the grave. Griffin collapses on the ground, decaying. Lord, I cannot feel you, Lord. And there is nothing left but a desiccated corpse. You killed him, Hippogriff says. There, yes, we did. Now, we need to talk to your master. We will not harm him directly at this time. He has many choices. We need merely to talk to him. This we swear. At this point, Morpheus steps in, sort of telepathically communicating with the guardians. Or maybe it's out loud, but the point is, he's not there, he's just talking. We see his face in the wyvern's eye, and we hear his voice. Let her through. I will not have either of you endangered. She has sworn her oath. Your friend has not died in vain. I have spoken to the lord of this realm. He has given you permission to enter the castle, and will grant you audience. I am honor-bound to warn you to stay on the path through the castle. Straying from the path could mean your destruction. You killed my friend, woman. Stray from your path, man. Wyvern holds a grudge, but it's interesting. Well, it happened like four seconds ago? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's the interesting part is that even though they're like they're figments that exist to fulfill a purpose, they clearly have like feelings and existence. They care about you know the other two guardians. They have friends. That's sort of the interesting thing about the dreaming, right? It exists as a presentation. It exists to show people dreams, but the things that live in it exist and live. Yeah. Because they suffer. <sighs> Worth noting that they address her as lady or woman, as though she's one person, even though she is casting three shadows. That is an interesting point. What's really going to bake your noodle is did Morpheus decide not to see anyone today for any reason other than to make them kill one of the guardians? <laughs> I just appreciated the Matrix reference. Now, as they make their way through the palace, we get a whole page of this. And it looks like there's all sorts of bystanders that kind of watch them go by. Yeah, this is an interestingly creepy page, them making their way through the palace as shadows on the walls. And when they arrive, Morpheus greets them in an interesting way. Come in, Light-A-Hall. We are not Light-A-Hall. No. We are far more than Light-A-Hall. We are the kindly ones, Morpheus. We are the Aranese. We are vengeance and hatred unending. We are your doom. Why are you here? For now, simply to offer some advice. And your advice is? We will destroy your dream world, Morpheus. We will destroy everything you have ever loved, anything you have ever cared for, and in the end, we shall destroy you. Do you have any particular reason for doing this? And now we get a third caption form. Lyda Hall screams from inside the Furies. You killed my son, you pasty-faced bastard, and you're going to suffer for it. You have spilled the blood of your family, Morpheus. You killed your son. That makes you our legitimate prey. Morpheus counters. This is my world, ladies. I control it. I am responsible for it. You will neither destroy it, nor will you destroy me. No? How fares the Griffin on your gate, Dream King? and then they are gone. I want to point out a couple of things in the art here. One is that as we see the tripartite shadow of the Furies, we can see that they are holding a whip with a scorpion on the end. Yes, the scorpion flail. There is also a sword. Yeah, I also want to point out these pretty rad-looking Mignola-esque gargoyles that Morpheus is hanging out with. Yeah, this whole page looks pretty Mignola-esque. Kind of cool. A thing I like here, and we skipped over it, They say that they killed the griffin, and he says, In a manner of speaking, perhaps, I can create another who would not even know that it had ever died. Yeah. So he's kind of also calling out that paradoxical existence of the dreams. Well, yeah, and he's, especially he's pointing to a capability that he has that we're going to wonder why he's not using. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So Morpheus contacts Matthew. It's been five days without finding Daniel. I am extremely unimpressed. He goes on to ask, Where are you two? You are not in the waking world. I sent you to the waking world. The Corinthian retorts that the child is no longer in the waking world, Lord. We will find him and bring him to you as you command it. Soon. I see. I have a certain amount of faith and confidence in both of you. It would disappoint me exceedingly to find that it had been misplaced. So we go on in this scary gray world where the Corinthian and Matthew are searching. Now, by scary gray world, you're not talking about an island. An island? A little island. A scary. Oh, not that kind of a... Oh my god. No, You you have to disambiguate when you're talking about Sandman. Nor nor is it the world depicted in the books of Richard. Scary. Yeah, that's less important to disambiguate, but thank you. So they get attacked by a wolf. Do we want to start with the wolf? Yes. Wolf! (laughs) <laughs> says Matthew. <laughs> we can start with this bit where he's making fun of Tony Curtis's accent in the Vikings. Yonder lies the palace of my father. Anyway, a wolf pounces on the Corinthian, knocks his sunglasses off, but he manages to get a hand on its snout, which he then uses to snap its neck. Do you think it was a real wolf? Or do you think we're expected? We're a long way from the real world now, Matthew. I think we can assume that we are expected. But real or not, that was still my first kill of this life, Matthew. And the eyes are mine. Bad dude. Scary dude. Indeed. By which I do not mean that he is a dude from a small island. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) So it is still Saturday as Lucifer in his club. He owns a nightclub in LA since he walked away from his job in hell. Uh, He plays Cole Porter, and he finds himself bored with this life. Yeah, he performs secret songs that Cole Porter never published. Right. Because they're dirty. Yeah. Dirty ones. (laughs) Meanwhile, Larissa, who is also Thessaly, uh, reads John Bauer and is concerned about the visitor the auguries tell her is coming tomorrow. Yeah, it's referred to in the narration as an improving book. She's reading an improving book. Yeah. Oh, and she's got a bowl of lamb stew, because she sacrificed a lamb a couple of issues ago. That, it's not really much of a sacrifice if you go on to eat it. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I guess I don't know that, I mean, I don't know the traditions around animal sacrifices. Maybe it's quite common for them to be eaten after they're sacrificed, but anyway, we learn that she is all out of money. Lyda Hall is on her bed, so she's bought herself a camp bed. To sleep on, and it's just about the last purchase she can afford to make, ever. <laughs> no, not ever. She just needs to get more money. So she's three thousand years old. She can <laughs> figure it out. Well, yes, exactly. She didn't plan for this long of her retirement. <laughs> it's, a, it's a common mistake. Oh man, <laughs> you know the average the average life expectancy is going up. <laughs> And, uh, you know, people need to be financially prepared. Yeah, you gotta start early. Also in fairy, Nwalla sits and tries to remember what she did with her time before she went to the Dreaming. Right, she used to have no purpose and be completely happy with it, we are told. Which implies that she has no purpose and is unhappy with it now. Right, and she is playing with the stone that Morpheus gave her. It was given to her by a lady that Morpheus used to see socially. Yes. But Morpheus imbued it with a boon. He imbued it. <laughs> right, so she can use it to get a boon from Morpheus. But she's not doing that now. She's just playing with it. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> so Rose reads old journal entries and wonders how she could ever have been so shallow. Yeah, she reads a journal entry about how she just likes sex and which people wouldn't fall in love with her. And she wonders why she's never sad when love affairs end. Mm -hmm. And she uh, kind of chides herself. What a bitch you were, Rosalita. What a cold bitch on wheels. And then she calls Jack. Hello, Miss Walker. How on earth did you get this number? How? I asked the hotel desk clerk how to dial information. I think he likes me. Listen, it's awfully lonely here. You know what I was thinking? Why don't you come down to the hotel? I'll order a bottle of wine and we can... Rose, that would be a terribly bad idea. Well, why would it be a bad idea? Wasn't it good last night? Wasn't it great? It was undeniably pleasant. Still, this isn't an ideal time to discuss it. You aren't alone, are you? Very perceptive. Um, the person that you aren't alone with, this is someone you should have told me about, isn't it? Exactly. And there's nothing else to say, is there? I'm afraid not. Dang. And that is her response as well. She sits there for three panels and then says, "Fuck." And we get one final panel. It's about half the page, and it shows Morpheus, the Wyvern, the Hippogriff, Lucian, Abel, Merv, and is that Cain? Yeah. They are gathered around a whole six foot deep, and on Sunday, they held the first funeral. The first, we are meant to infer, of many. So that issue ends on two sad pages. Yeah. page of Rose being sad, and then there's page of everyone else being sad. Yeah, things are going to get tougher from here. This is it. Don't get scared now. What's that? (laughs) Uh, Fucking Home Alone 2. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe it's Home Alone 1. I don't remember. It's not important. Yeah, well, it's not, yeah, it's not important which Home Alone movie it's from, because it's not as if anybody ever watches just one of them anyhow. (laughs) <laughs> everybody knows that home alone is customarily watched as one gigantic four-hour movie home alone is an afternoon <laughs> yeah that is to say that's how people watch both of the home alone movies that they ever made. <laughs> right yeah no yeah. there aren't any other home alone movies very important to remember so we move on to sandman number 65 the kindly ones nine written by neil gaiman art by mark hempel hey mark hempel's back colors by daniel vaso and a cover by dave mckeon And on this cover by Dave McKeon, we get a doorway, or an archway, and we get a Corinthian. Yeah, there's this clay figure with teeth in its eyes, holding a flame in its hand. Once again, the first panel of the issue is the string. This time, there's a pair of scissors around it, poised to cut. Yeah, and we can see the hand of the crown holding these scissors. This is one of the aspects of the Kindly Ones are the Furies. They are the the Norns that spin the thread, weave it, and cut it. They are also the Hecate. The Maiden, the Mother, and the Crone. Right. Almost time. Nearly. Very nearly. Oh yeah. She sings a tune here. A little bar of a song. Sunday morning. That's just the tune I made up. I don't know. Yeah. What song she's singing. It's it's as good as any. So, Sunday morning, hello, Mr. McGuire. Yeah, this is Rose, and she has come to visit Paul in the house at Witchcross. That would be Paul McGuire, the lover of Alex, the imprisoner of Morpheus, some time ago. Yeah. Actually, the son of the imprisoner of Morpheus, later the jailkeeper of Morpheus. Yeah. He offers her tea, and she accepts wine. So he lives in the gatehouse. He explains that there's not much to see in the gatehouse. It's just his bachelor flat. Instead, they should go to the actual house. Yeah. that's, That's what she came to see. She's really grumpy right now. He asks how her researches are going, and she says, they suck. The whole thing sucks. She's pretty upset about the whole Jack situation. But anyway, he offers her a guided tour of the big house, and so they go. So as they head for the house, Paul calls out Roderick Burgess's uniquely deplorable architectural taste which I liked. And Rose comments on the name Fawny Rig. Yeah, Paul mentions that the name Witch Manor has nothing to do with witches. That's witch with a Y. Which is a word he thinks for an elm tree. Right. And he says that Burgess renamed it Fawny Rig in the 1890s when he bought the house. That is going to be retconned later. as being Joanna Constantine's doing. Yeah. Although it may not be a retcon, it could just be that Paul is wrong. Yeah, that that makes sense. He wasn't there. We see sheet-covered furniture and a very nice library. Rose is impressed as she pulls out a book, and it's apparently a signed original by Yates. This is the library. I've never been much of a reader, I'm afraid. These are Alex's books and his father's. Not the rare occulty ones. They're kept elsewhere, after some problems we had a few years back. This place is like the library of my dreams, Rose says. When money got a bit tight in the late 70s, I suggested we sell some of the books. Alex wouldn't hear of it. Wound up selling off 20 acres of prime woodland to developers instead. There's a thing here. Paul explicitly tells Rose that she can't take anything away, but later on we see her reading a very rare book. Yeah, and she says she has to mail it back. Okay, so so you also concluded that she took a book from this library? Yeah, I think it's from this library. I don't know if it's without Paul's permission. Oh, okay. okay. They chat about how Paul and Alex hooked up and the roses that grow here in the winter. Yeah, and Paul feels the sudden need to sit down. Should we cover how they hooked up in more detail? That's a bit of an amusing story, the sure. way he phrases it. I was a young and beautiful undergardener. He was a repressed old maid of 40-ish. I persuaded him to take advantage of me behind the potting shed. Really? Or the summer house. I forget. Anyway, yeah. Paul begs off the tour out of breath. Rose heads up to the second story, commenting as she goes that she is too cynical to try he loves me, not with the rose that she has plucked from the conservatory. So we'll just assume he doesn't love me. She pokes an ugly bat-shaped fixture, And an actual secret door opens up. Well, she pokes a fixture. I'm not here to judge. (laughs) She pokes a fixture with image issues. (laughs) (laughs) That fixture deserves love, too. (laughs) Oh, I love it. It's just a hideous little fucker, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But she shouts for Paul that she's found this secret door. And he says, no big deal. (laughs) It just leads down to the cellar. It ought to be quite safe. There's a light switch as you go in. NBD, just a secret passage, LOL. (laughs) So she heads down this secret passage and hears, Hello, granddaughter. It's Desire. Now, at this point, I wondered if Desire can make somebody want to sit down real bad. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So that it could get Rose alone to have this chat. Right. I want to point out this panel of wide-eyed, scared Rose, which is really kind of cartoonish and cool looking. Yes. Desire explains that it is Rose's grandfather. I Uh, fathered your mother on little sleeping Unity. It wasn't hard. There's not really an actual transmission of semen, but Unity's body thought there was. You're of my blood, girl. So, you got my message. The message wasn't from grandmother, not exactly. Right, so Zelda saw this message in a dream and said that Rose's grandmother was inviting her to England, but it turns out to be the other grandparent. Now, why would Morpheus send a message in a dream on Desire's behalf? This is a good point. Weird shit, Rose says. This is just one of those weird shit moments, isn't it? Yeah, she asks if Desire is going to hurt her, and Desire replies, no more than usually, and perhaps a little, but only with love. Rose uh, looks at her own reflection in Morpheus's crystal cell. And reflects on love. Horrible, isn't it? It makes you so vulnerable. It opens your chest and it opens your heart and it means someone can get inside you and mess you up. You build up all these defenses. You build up this whole armor for years so nothing can hurt you. Then one stupid person, no different from any other stupid person, wanders into your stupid life. She looks really amazingly miserable here. It's quite good. You give them a piece of you. They don't ask for it. They do something dumb one day like kiss you or smile at you, and then your life isn't your own anymore. Love takes hostages. When she said your life isn't your own anymore, it reminded me of a Tiger Army song Mm -hmm. where he says, my heart's no longer mine. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I remember that song. Also like the kind of general oeuvre of of Florence Welch, right? Whose happiest songs are always, I'm in love and that means I'm going to change and the person I am is dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so she goes on ranting for a bit. I hate love. Desire retorts, I think I preferred you, granddaughter, when you were stoically complaining about not feeling anything. That may be a reference to the diary entry that we saw earlier. Right, yeah. Paul interrupts, walks in to see how Rose is doing in the basement, and she seems to wake up. She says that she must have fallen asleep as she's leaning against the crystal cell there. Yeah, he asks, what do you think of the sanctum sanctorum? Which made me smile. Right. Do you see this twist of smoke that disappears into a heart shape? I did not notice that until just now. Like, Desire just poofed into this wisp of smoke, maybe? Could be. Yeah, and Rose comments that Desire kept lighting cigarettes, which if you go back and look at the art of the couple of pages of their conversation, is true. Yeah, that's right. Desire constantly lights new cigarettes, which kind of... I, I like that as a metaphor for Desire. Desire only likes the beginning of things. Yeah. Like Don Draper. And indeed, we have seen Desire holding a stylish little silver heart shaped cigarette lighter. Yes. And before they leave the room, Paul uh, leans over and finds it. Oopsie daisy, you dropped something. It's a lighter, isn't it? Art Deco, eh? Very nice. He hands this heart back to Rose. Here you go. Don't want to go losing it again, do you? Now remember, Zelda said when she gave Rose the message. She said if you go to her, she'll give you back your heart. I had forgotten that. That's a neat observation. Yeah, so Rose has gotten her heart back. So, page 10. We are now in Svartalfheim, home of the Dark Elves. Right. Matthew and the Corinthian are planning their attack. And then Matthew almost gets pulled away by something. Something's pulling me back to the dreaming. Fight it. Yeah, the Corinthian briefly ponders whether they should do some recon or go in in disguise, but he just, in the end, is like, no, let's just do it. If we are expected, then we are expected, and I have no talent for disguise. Right, it seems like Matthew wants to use a fancier plan since he is good at the recon, but the Corinthian wants to go straight toward the problem. They run into this silver cord trailing through the hallway of this big scary mansion, and they know what it is. It's for finding your way back to your body. They follow the cord into this room, and they can see it trailing into the fireplace. And in this room is waiting someone who does have a talent for disguise. Morpheus? Matthew, you and your friend have done well. I am proud of you both. You have won through all the trials and travails that I created to test your loyalty. You may both now return to the Dreaming to receive your reward. Boss? That isn't him. Sounds kind of like him, though, which I thought was funny, because he actually has Morpheus's black speech bubbles. (laughs) Right. Corinthian grabs Morpheus by the throat. You are not our lord. You are not my creator. We cannot be fooled that easily. It tries a whole bunch of different forms. It does, like, a dragon thing, and then it becomes the Corinthian himself. Oh, please, credit me at least with the wit to know which one of us I am. And then a body of flames and then little Daniel. That's much more imaginative, but still not convincing. And finally it arrives on the form of Loki. Yeah, he makes various promises in exchange for his freedom, but no luck. Yeah, and his, his voice starts to break as he does. Kill me and the curse of a god will follow you down the halls of time. Kill you? I wouldn't kill you. Why would I wish to incur the death curse of a god? even a pathetic sneaking excuse for a god like you, but I can make you pray for death. The Corinthian finally knocks Loki out. How can he help us if he's knocked out, Matthew asks. Oh, he'll help us, whether he wants to or not. I told the truth, I would not kill him, but I can hurt him, and I will. And besides, have you ever wondered, little bird, what it must be like to see the world through the eyes of a god? And he is saying this in the creepy voice that comes from the mouths in his eyes. Okay, in the dreaming, we find the ladies choosing targets. They think about Cain, but he's too well protected. Remember, he's got the mark of Cain, so he can't be harmed. They think about Eve. No, she is an aspect of themselves. They think about Fiddler's green. Here, that? Yes, here. So they wander into Fiddler's Green, this this beautiful, idyllic sailor's paradise, and start killing animals. They whip this eagle with the scorpion flail. They kill a bear with a stick. Gilbert appears, Gilbert being the sort of humanoid embodiment of Fiddler's Green, and gently chides them as he cleans his glasses for damaging his inhabitants. I do not appreciate damage and destruction to my regular inhabitants. Do you know who we are? Do you know what we can do? No, madam, I do not believe I have had the pleasure. And as we turn the page, they suddenly stab Gilbert with the stick. Madame, I do not know your grievance, but I do wish that we could have talked about it before you resorted to violence. But then, if I have to die, I have lived an interesting life, and a varied one. I suppose I had always hoped that I would die quietly, on my own, or that I would die for a reason. It occurs to me now that only things that are truly unreasonable have reasons. Perhaps only the inconsequential need consequences. Still, I do rather wish it had happened another way. Whom? Damn it. As Gilbert has been stabbed and collapses onto the ground, we see a beautiful butterfly come and settle on the stick that's impaling him. He's still a gorgeous and paradisical place even as he's dying. But in the second to last panel here, we see the world of Fiddler's Green fading. And as he is dead on his back here in the final panel, the butterfly flitting off into the distance, the world around him has been replaced with gray crags. Scaries, maybe. God damn it. It's a dangerous thing, teaching me a new word. (laughs) Matthew appears. Surprisingly, not in Fiddler's Green, in the castle, in the dream castle. He was trying to handle the whole Daniel situation, but then he got pulled back to the Dreaming by some force. Listen, boss, Loki's involved. Loki's involvement is not entirely a surprise to me. Can you send me back? We were in some fort in a place called Swartalfheim. It is too late to send you back, Matthew. Events have progressed far beyond that point. The Kindly Ones have destroyed the griffin on the gate. Hmm. And they have just killed Fiddler's Green. Boss, if you didn't call me back here, who did? Hmm? No, I did not call you back, Matthew. I know that. What I want to know is. Ah, damn. Morpheus just vanishes in front of Matthew, leaving him alone in the throne room. Gilbert? So we cut to LA. Morpheus enters Thessaly's apartment. She forces herself to wake from a dream as he enters, so they end up face to face. It's kind of an unusual reversal here someone waking from a dream to meet Morpheus. Yeah, and it seems like he's announced himself with a nightmare. That makes sense. So, how have you been? Perfectly satisfactory. You look terrible. They exchange unpleasant pleasantries, Thessaly offers him tea. I have Red Zinger, Mint Madness, or a Cramp Bark and Chamomile blend of my own. I am here to end the matter of Lyta Hall. She is causing damage to the Dreaming. To end the matter? To kill her, you mean? I never understood your dislike of killing when it was necessary. No, you never did, did you? She has already caused a great deal of trouble. I have little choice in the matter. You have less choice than you might imagine. I see. He takes note of the circle of protection that is around Lyda on the bed. Well, aren't you just going to step over it, kill her? She's just one rather underfed mortal woman. She wouldn't last three minutes against you. I cannot cross the borders of the circle. No, you can't. So... This calls back to an interesting bit of foreshadowing, because Odin had a comment when he spoke to Morpheus about, I do not enter the homes of my enemies. And now Morpheus finds himself in the home of an enemy and unable to enter. Yeah, sort of. Now Morpheus says, Someone once told me that we would see each other again. Now, this is subtle, but this is actually a big reveal. Because in Sandman number 47, while Morpheus and Delirium were looking for destruction, they asked Destiny for advice. He told Morpheus that he would meet his latest ex-girlfriend one more time, and the meeting would be satisfactory for neither of them. 23 issues after the breakup. The ex-girlfriend is Thessaly. Why have you done this? Why? I suppose you think I just did it to hurt you. That does seem likely, yes? Not entirely. I made a deal with the three. I bought a little more life, maybe a couple of thousand years. Every little bit helps. And they agreed to forget some old scores. As Lyta, sort of half in delirium, sings about the stars, Morpheus muses, I could kill her. There are many ways to end a human life. I could do it without breaking the circle. Without breaking the circle, perhaps, but without breaking the rules? No. I must do it myself, directly. Of course, I could break the circle for you. I could even kill her for you. I am bound by no rules, and I owe her nothing. But we have established that there is nothing you could give me I would want. I mean, sounds like she needs money. <laughs> That's a good point. $150, enough to get a nice camp bed. Get some, get some cereal in here. Yeah. I, I did not intend to hurt you. And what if you did not? Intent and outcome are so rarely coincident. I simply wanted you to know. How sweet. Well, it was nice of you to drop by. If you need me, you know where to find me. May your gods be with you. Oh, they will be. There's never been any doubt about that. And as he leaves, he shatters her window. How childish. Men. So I wonder what he's referring to when he says, I did not intend to hurt you. I wonder if he's just talking about his visit just now, or if it's something to do with their breakup. Yeah, I thought that he meant, when they broke up. But that was, it seemed like that was her idea. Um, that's true. At the time, he narrated that she no longer loved him and had decided to leave of her own accord. Yeah. But maybe he just means, like, being a bad boyfriend then. Maybe. This certainly seems to suggest that the breakup was contentious on her end, which is not an implication we've seen before. Mm Mm-hmm. It's interesting, again, the way that The way that their interaction in this scene is so human, even though he's not human and she hasn't been exactly one for a really long time. Right. But their ex-romantic dialogue is very stilted, very pained. They clearly have a sort of intimacy, even though they are now apart, and in fact mortal enemies at this point. And it's interesting to see how they're sort of being very petty with each other. Yeah, it really reads like a scene between ex-lovers. Although, I didn't pick that up the first time. So, back in the Dreaming, Matthew is chatting with another of the summoned ravens. This is specifically the first raven that Noah released from the Ark. So these aren't just, like, ravens from all over the world. These are ravens from all the stories and legends. I wonder if any ravens came from Marvel Comics. They are standing over Gilbert's body. The raven offers Matthew the first bite, but he can't. This was a friend. Although he does comment that it smells good. Poor guy. Anyway. I'm afraid there's going to be lots more where that came from. The thing you ought to remember about ravens is that we belong equally to both genders. You don't see that every day, but we're as likely to be the Morgans as Odin's, as likely to be Eve's as Dream's. Other than that, we have nothing in common, save a love of fine conversation and a tendency to view a battle as a prelude to fine dining. And I think that's an important line, because I think that is what the ravens are all doing here. What has summoned them here is that there's about to be death and destruction on a massive scale in the world of myth, and they are here to feast on the corpses. Well, yeah, and that's made much more explicit on the next page. I don't know that it was so much of a figuring out, more of a knowing, once I got back here. There's going to be a lot of corpses, aren't there? There's going to be a battle. There's going to be a war. Oh, I think the war's already begun. This is also the page where we get Matthew talking about his adventures in It was like a bad TV show. He's a reincarnated serial killer. His partner's a bird. They're cops. So, speaking of reincarnated serial killer, we get a Nolan-esque cut back to the now eyeless and bloody Loki. And the grinning Corinthian pulls on the silver cord, pulling in the floating baby Daniel, who had clearly gotten away from Yoshi when he got hit by a shy guy. Right. So there you are, Daniel. I've been looking all over for you. And I wrote, Cory's got Danny! So that is an ominous place to leave things, but we have one more issue. Sandman number 66, The Kindly Ones 10. Yeah, on the cover here, we have fires reflected in a pool of blood. Yes, and the fires form the face of Morpheus. You can't see it. Eric's rotating his comic to try to see it now. (laughs) (laughs) Look, the eye, the nose, the mouth. (laughs) Well, if you say so, man. We pick up right where we left off. Cory snaps the silver cord. Yep, and he is taking Daniel to the Dreaming. Deeming? Note that as he snaps the silver cord, we can see a couple of panels later here that the end of the silver cord, as we saw in the last issue, goes into the fire. That is where Puck and Loki put Daniel's body. So as he snaps the cord, he is taking Daniel away from his body to take him into the Dreaming. But before they leave... You might as well show yourself. I've got the boy now. How did you know that I was here? <laughs> That's amazing! <laughs> Do that more often! <laughs> okay, it is, uh, it is Puck who has been hiding in the rafters watching this scene. You breathe too loudly, little creature. What manner of thing are you, anyway? I am the Puck called Robin Goodfellow. I am a trickster, an antic prankster, a will o the wisp. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold mere anarchy is loose upon the world. That's me. What is that line? I think it's Yates. Oh, okay. That would make sense. Yeah, it's the second coming by Yates. Cool. So, Corinthian asks why they stole Daniel, and Puck's answer, which I thought was pretty funny, is basically, none of your business. I take babies all the time. (laughs) I'm all the time taking babies. He refuses to answer any questions, but he does add that they burned away most of Daniel's mortality. But another few days, another few fires, and we would have had it all. The Corinthian asks if they're going to fight. A puck is harder by far to hurt than some little lord of malice from the land of ice and snow. We pucks are old and hard and wild. But no, I'll leave, I think, and take my adieus of this dull sphere. Yep, a puck leaves, and then the Corinthian notices that Loki's regained consciousness. You gained consciousness two minutes back. Your breathing betrays you too, Loki. Kill me. Give me back my eyes, or kill me. No. I shall keep the eyes, and I shall let you live. Good night. As Corinthian walks away, Loki lies there on the floor, continuing to beg. Please. Please, kill me. After the Corinthian leaves, Odin shows up. Loki tries to sell him a story where he was taken from his prison against his will by Morpheus. He showed heroic refusal to betray Odin, of course. Dream, he says, sent the Corinthian to pull his eyes out for his refusal. And that's the truth you tell me, Loki? Answer me honestly, for if this is true, then it's war between Asgard and the Dreaming. True as I breathe. Then your breathing must be difficult indeed, Loki. For you lie. So, the Dreaming and Asgard are not going to war because Odin's no fool. Boring, Ray's no dummies. (laughs) That's pretty good. Odin and Thor pick up Loki and carry him back to his prison under the earth. You know, where the snake's above him with the venom dripping out of its mouth. Yeah, Thor shows up to be Odin's shit carrier. Thor, pick up this piece of shit. Oh, wow. That's literally what he said. Wow. They're they're not fans of Loki in this comic. As Thor is carrying him, Loki reveals that he slept with Sif. She has a birthmark high on the inside of her thigh in the shape of an anvil. I? I will kill you. Smash your skull like a stone. Thor, stop it. He wants you to kill him, Thor. He wants to die. He was lying to you. He tells lies. You know that. His punishment is worse than death. Death would be so easy. Put him down here. Once again, as in the old tale, they bind Loki with the guts of his son Narvi on the rock in the cave under the snake. Before they leave, Odin makes an offer to Loki's wife, Sijin. He treated you ill. He left you here beneath the earth while he wandered free. You do not have to stay here. Let the snake drip its poison into the sockets of his eyes. Let him take his pain. He deserves it. But Sijin merely lowers her head. She is sort of sadly resigned here. Yeah, and then we get a page of her just catching the snake venom in the bowl yep. and him just being a bad husband very well. Snake, let flow your venom. I dis- like how Odin's always addressing the snake even though its name is just snake. Yeah. He dissects her with his words, whips her with incenities and bruises her with curses. I'm pleased you came back, my love, whispers his wife. And he begins to laugh inanely, high and wordless. He takes a deep breath and then, broken necked head lolling, eye sockets bloodied and hollowed, he begins to curse her once more. Meanwhile, we have the Fury's point of view on Abel. You can't kill me, he says. Abel knows the rules, and he's never spilled family blood. But they reply You scarcely exist. You're a dream of a ghost of a memory of someone who, one suspects, never existed in the first place. Your death will hardly be a real death. None of you are truly dead until Morpheus himself is dead, are you? And this will hardly be your first death, will it? As a sword is driven into Abel's chest and he falls, You mustn't kill me. You don't love me. You don't even know me. Sad. Yeah, but he dies. He is left bleeding on the floor there with Goldie, the little gargoyle crying over his body. God damn it, the Furies. Now we cut to a wild party and fairy there are boobs and dancing. Yep, and in the background we can see Titania looking somber on her throne. Chloricon is drunkenly narrating to himself about fairy. It's a place of endless diversity, even anarchy, someone says to him, but he says it's all a dull routine. Frankly, I would find it difficult to imagine any action here that would so much as draw comment, where the queen herself depicts some witless human from the crowd and announced that she was taking him as a lover then no one would be the slightest bit shocked, or even surprised. Well, there's something to surprise, one fairy says. Puck Uh, is back. Yeah, Robin Goodfellow has landed on a lady's shoulder and is putting his hand down her shirt. He goes to the queen and kisses her hand. Huh, he was never her pet before, nor is he now. See, Cloricon, that was a wonder. Both the return of Puck and the fact that he was casually accepted by Titania. But, Claricon says, still it causes no more than raised eyebrows. But then he does see something that shocks him. By the silver apples of the moon, what has she done? It's Nuala, and she's come to this party with no glamour. Nuala, asks Titania. Is this a deliberate insult? No, Nuala says. She just felt more comfortable without it. You felt comfortable? Clothe yourself, Nuala, immediately. Nuala starts to refuse, but Cloricon waves a hand, and her glamour reappears. She's the beautiful statuesque blonde once again. Cloricon drops in beside Nuala, announcing that she's won the bet. He bet her there was nothing she could do to cause comment at the revels. This is a lie, of course, but this is the excuse he's making to save her from Titania's wrath. I shall take my banishment manfully, he says. <laughs> yeah, this is funny as he goes on suggesting extreme punishments for his crime. Now, Majesty, banishment, decapitation, or something lingering with boiling oil in it somewhere. Clercon, you are a rascal. Noala, meanwhile, dances with Puck. And when he starts insulting Morpheus, A pale and prissy, pompous, preening prig. A prick-me-dainty, popinjay, A pig. <laughs> it's classy that his insults rhyme, at least the Lord Shaper is none of those things. Was none of those things. Was? More or less, lady. We set the furies around his ears, my associate and I. If he is not yet gone, he will be soon. There, is that not fine revenge for taking a fairy lady as his scullery maid? Yes. Nuala shows considerable decorum here. She sort of calmly states that nothing could hurt the Lord Shaper, right? Before she runs off concerned. You are a very stupid creature. I swear on my name, soon he will be remembered only by antiquaries. And then we are all improved by the glow of memory. Meanwhile, a murder of ravens feed on dead dreams. One is narrating in verse until he is chased off by a rock thrown by Merv Pumpkinhead. Get out of here, Guan Shu. And I thought the boss's birds was bad. At least none of them thought they was poets. Yeah, yeah, point taken, except what's his name? aristus of Marmora. Now, Merv, wearing a U.S. Marine Corps jacket, says that it's time to fight back. Yeah, it seems like he's doing a bit from a movie here. Uh Oh, yeah, he has this speech about how proud he is of all of his soldiers, with this bunch of waking world names that are obviously not the names of anyone he's addressing. His companion, Abuda, has brought the artillery, and he pulls this great big machine gun out of a box. Now, let's get out there. We're doing it for the dreamin'. We're doing it for the boss. Merv walks into the bleak mists, gun in hand, and he finds himself face to face with the Kindly Ones. Again, we see this from their perspective. We don't get a look at them. You? What are you? Me? Lady, I'm your worst nightmare. A pumpkin with a gun. We have no nightmares. We are the Hounds of Hades. Gods fear us. Demons fear us. We have hounded kings and angels we have taken vengeance on worlds and on universes. We are the kindly ones. We are the Eumenides. Yeah, well, Eumenides this, <laughs> Merv says as he opens fire. And the guns, which were provided by a Buddha, go Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. Yeah, I love that we almost never get a sound effect, but Merv shooting this big gun does get one. Unfortunately, the bullets all fly back at him. Right, and we see Merv torn apart by bullets and rendered into a squashed pumpkin on the ground. God damn it, the Furies! Mervin's dead. Yes. How how dare you let that happen, Lord? How dare you? You will not speak to me like that, Lucian. I doubt I'll be alive tomorrow, Lord. On that basis, I find it particularly easy to say exactly what I think. I cannot believe that you could let him of all people. Mervyn was a fine soul. He is far from the only one. He didn't deserve it. None of you deserve it. You can't just sit here while they hurt us to hurt you. Why aren't you restoring the things they destroy? Morpheus says he can't be rid of the Kindly Ones until they destroy him. He had planned to kill Lyda, the vessel that they're using. But that's proven impractical, thanks to Thessaly's meddling. Now I am considering. Yeah, he doesn't know what he's going to do. Yeah, and that's... An unsubtle but a really effective scene as, A, I mean, Lucian never really gave much of an indication that he liked Merv. They annoyed the hell out of each other. And that's the thing that pushes him to do the other thing he would never do, which is to get in Morpheus's face and actually break decorum. Yeah, Um, tell him he's being a chump. Yeah, Lucian acting out of character really hits home how bad the situation in the Dreaming has got. Nuala, runs into the wood between worlds, sick of fairy but unable to leave on her own power. The little Boggart, that has been hassling her for the last few issues with a poem, catches up and tries to continue, but she threatens to hurt it very badly if it stays. As she's walking through the woods, she comes to a spot where three paths converge, and walking on one of the other branches are the Furies. Yeah, the Hecate, the Three Ladies. And they are talking about the fact that the Crone has cut the thread, but sometimes it takes the victim a little while to notice. Atropos? Is there something you aren't telling us? Did you know what that line meant? Atropos is the fury that cuts the thread, if I'm not mistaken. I see. Yeah, so the Crone knows something that the other two don't. Now, coming down the third path is Delirium. Yep, still accompanied by the little goblin that Morpheus gave her, who she introduces as the borgal Rantipole. Nuala asks if Dream is in trouble. I was told today that he was in great trouble. Is that true? And Delirium makes her trouble face here, which is quite a face. Yeah, she looks extraordinarily guilty and worried, and Nuala says, he is in trouble. She asks, isn't there anything you can do about it? Delirium says she tried to get him to join her on the search for her dog. She tried to get him to leave the Dreaming, the place where the Furies would attack. At the mention that she's looking for her dog, Nuala suggests looking where she left it, which has apparently never occurred to Delirium. That is so extremely clever. I never thought of that. Thank you, pretty fairy. I think you must be my good fairy. I wish I could give you a present. Do you need a word that means red and green at the same time? No, thank you. You don't want a present? Noella lifts up the bauble around her neck. I already have one. Now we find Rose, on a plain home, sitting next to a middle-aged woman, we will learn her name is Celia Cripps, who looks suspiciously like the mother. Suspicious? What day is it? Celia asks what Rose is reading, and Rose gives a scandalizing description of Here Comes a Candle, the novel Erasmus Fry wrote using Calliope's power, that we heard about in Sandman number 17. Ah, uh, yes. And she has to send it back when she's finished it, because... This is a rare out-of-print book that she borrowed from Alex's library. Yeah, and she, um, starts needling Celia a little bit. He's kind of a cross between Robert Aikman and, I don't know, Shirley Jackson, maybe, in her we-have-always-lived-in-the-castle mode. You know Shirley Jackson? Um, not really. And, of course, Celia doesn't. Yeah, I also like where Rose says, oh, this is the scandalizing description. I think they're screwing, but it was written back in the dawn of time, so they do it in rows of asterisks or between chapters. And Celia has an amazing wide-eyed face at that. Oh! So Rose goes on to describe her trip to England through a metaphor. Did you ever follow your parents around, like down to the mall or something? And you're following your mom, and then she turns around, and you realize it's not your mom. It's like some other woman with the same green dress. Did that ever happen to you? That's how my visit to England felt, I suppose. Like I was waiting for the lady in the green dress to turn around. So we are now back on Nuala, who uses her bauble... You said I could call you, and you'd come, and I could have a boon. So here and now do I call you, Lord Shaper. Nuala? Yes, Lord. I am no longer your lord. No, of course you aren't. I'm sorry. This is exceedingly inconvenient, Nualla. Can we not postpone it to another time? No, my lord, we cannot. You do me a disservice, Nualla. I am here, Nualla. Welcome to the dwelling, Lord Shaper. Can I offer you wine or pastries? If you ate flowers, I would offer you flowers. No wine, no pastries, and I do not eat flowers. State your boon and I will grant it. She says... She's heard that he's in trouble. He dissembles. The Puck says many things. The Lady Delirium, while she has many fine features, also says many things. Are you in trouble? Yes, I suppose that I am. However, as long as I remain in the Dreaming, no real harm can occur. My lord, you are no longer in the Dreaming. And, guiltily, Morpheus says, No, I am not. So, Nuala used the bauble to call Morpheus in an attempt to protect him from the Kindly Ones, but now that he has left the Dreaming, the damage that they do will be permanent. Oops. Shit. (laughs) Hate when I do that. Yeah, and on that ominous note, our coverage ends for today, but there are only three more issues left in this story. Yeah, I can't wait to see how it ends. So, Rose goes through a couple of interesting things here. She's got as much screen time as anybody, really. And she has a weird encounter with her grandfather, who's just the worst. But she had been complaining that she was sort of emotionless before, that she couldn't get attached to things. We saw in the old diary entry that she wasn't really interested in love. And... She came to England to get her heart back, and Desire seems to have given it to her. You know, I didn't really make that connection. I just sort of thought that it was like, you know, that's life a little bit. Yeah. Uh, A person is very casual about their sexual encounters until they meet someone they don't want to be casual about, and then they find out that that person wants to be casual about them. Yeah. But yes, it does seem she got her heart back. And one wonders if desire orchestrated the whole thing between her and Jack. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's like, frightening to comprehend. I mean, we certainly hope that they weren't driven into lust against their will. But, like, desire isn't endless. Desire is the concept of desire. Of course, if they want each other, it relates back to desire somehow, right? This is true. But, yeah, I mean, you raise an interesting point. And I, I sort of hadn't thought of that because we literally see... That she is handed the heart that Desire had. The heart always being Desire's sigil. But there's also the encounter with Jack, which was meaningful to her. Which perhaps had as much of an effect on her as any of the weird shit that happens. She received the message. She's been kind of flailing in England in issues prior to this. Mm -hmm. But now we see the the kind of reason for her arrival. Mm -hmm. And Desire maybe... Signing things a little bit, signing its involvement by drawing somebody back to the place where Morpheus was imprisoned to explain that the creation of Unity and therefore Rose was entirely its doing. Yes. We saw what happened to Loki. It wasn't pleasant. No, Loki gets off very badly in this story. And it's interesting considering that he comes from a myth in which he is treated quite terribly in which he gets a really severe punishment. And for his role in this story, for the atrocities he commits here, Gaiman gives him an even worse punishment because now his neck's broken and his eyes are hollow. Right. And he's still got a snake dripping venom on him. (laughs) Yeah. And again, Gaiman sort of finds the humanity in legendary characters, right? We have that moment of Sijin, like, considering. Can she move on from Loki? Can she? go have a life outside of this man who treats her terribly and much as she might want to she can't she still loves him in her way and she's still resigned to him um and that sucks precision it's it's a hard moment yeah but she's is she real or is she just a story of a person yeah i mean that's the question she's a mythological character right so she can't possibly do what's against the story right it's like the uh the cat was talking about a few issues ago. About how she likes to trick shapeshifters. The third shape oh, yeah. is always a mouse, and they can't not fall for it, because that's the story. Right. I thought it was really interesting to see the role that Thessaly has in this story. Yeah, that was a big reveal. And just why would Morpheus date Thessaly, honestly? I mean, they're both really old and really ruthless. That I thought was really funny too, is that when we finally find out it's Thessaly remember that the last time we saw her interact with Morpheus, she was just being very loudly unimpressed with him. Like making a big show of, I'm not interested in the Dream King, he's not so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Is that how they met? They met in Game of You? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, in which he was annoyed at her impudence in breaking into the Dreaming, but maybe a little bit impressed too. Yeah, I did not think sparks were flying there. No, I wouldn't have thought so. What a twist! Yeah, I think these issues really do well with balancing a lot of characters and kind of moving the story along. Yeah, although fewer characters now, we get some deaths in the dreaming, and they are really hard in some cases. Yeah, not not fun to read. Although the one Mervin Pumpkinhead's his actually is fun to read. He's just that much fun of a character. Yeah, that even when he's even when he's getting killed, and we know we'll miss him, it's still fun to read. Yeah, but it's it's tough at the same moment to see like somebody actually tries to fight back somebody tries to do something about this and it's just futile yeah the furies are very powerful especially against living things apparently well they kind of tie into like the theme with morpheus right he's really driven by responsibility and they are they are the embodiment of the consequence of his actions (laughs) do you know what nemesis (laughs) (laughs) it's funny that you say that, considering there's also a literal nemesis in this story. Floricon's nemesis that he accidentally pulled out of a mirror. Oh, right. Yes, that is a thing that happened. But yeah, the, uh, the Kindly Ones, like, they can't be defeated because they are what Morpheus deserves. They are the reckoning for his actions. They are, and they are the... equal and opposite in a way, like a nemesis. Are you saying that, like, the reason that they can't be defeated is that they are, like, the concept of causality itself? Oh, that's probably a bit of a stretch, but it's an interesting thought. Well, you know, everybody always says, like, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Yeah. And the idea behind that behind that philosophical question is, like, gods are strong, but are they stronger than the concept of causality? Right. And here we see it's like, you know what's stronger than gods? Well, endless are stronger than gods, but you know what's stronger than endless? Consequences. Yeah, yeah. But they get their power from the rules, much the way that Morpheus is is obsessed with and driven by the rules, and limited by them almost willfully. Like, it's suggested in his scene with Thessaly that he's basically omnipotent. He could find a way to do something about it, but he won't, because the rule is he doesn't cross that circle. Right. And he wouldn't, like Ned Stark, he wouldn't kill somebody unless he could swing the sword himself. Right. So, in our next Sandman episode. Join us as real things happen to imaginary people in the final chapter of The Kindly Ones. But first, join us in two weeks as Hellblazer dives headfirst into the fast-talking world of Damon Runyon. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I hope that's what it actually is. Like, that sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) That should be what happens. Guys and Dolls, Vertiguise is written and hosted by me and Sean and is brought to you by the letter V. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. Hey, do you like that thing where we know the esoteric literary reference that Neil Gaiman just made? Well, we catch even more of them in the show notes on every episode that you can find at vertiguise.blueberry.com. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us by searching Vertigize on Twitter or on Facebook. You can email us, vertiguise at gmail.com. That's right. Or if you'd like to just send kind of a general wave of positivity at us, you could do that by giving us a positive rating or review on your podcast software of choice. Every time that you and a buddy are having a couple of drinks and you mention, hey, you should really listen to the Guys podcast, well, Sean knows, and it warms his heart. (laughs) And I always think, but thanks so much just for listening. Thanks, everybody. You want to do some analysis? Yes. A little, a little review and not just recap? Well, we did say we were here to recap and review. It sounds familiar to me. Let me put it this way. <laughs> You've heard that before? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I have heard that phrase. Uh, which was that podcast where they both recap and review? Is that explain the X-Men tighten up the defense? Fuck, that's us. No, that's ours.